1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to New Books in the American West, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dan Moran. I am thrilled to be here today with William Way, a professor of history at University of Colorado Boulder. He has written about the Asian American experience throughout the country and specifically in Colorado. He has held Rockefeller, Mellon, and Fulbright-Hayes Fellowships and also served as Colorado State Historian. So we are in very good hands and ready to learn about his most recent book, Becoming Colorado, The Centennial State in 100 Objects, published in 2021 by University Press of Colorado and History Colorado. Welcome, William. Thank you, Dad, for inviting me to your podcast. So you mentioned the opening of the book that you were inspired by Neil McGregor's exhibit at the British Museum, which is kind of funny because I thought of that book when I first saw yours. He turned his exhibit into a book called A History of the World in 100 Objects. Walk us through your thought process as you had this kind of notion and how it ended up becoming reality.
0: As you know from my acknowledgments, my wife, Dr. Susan Way, uh, bought me McGregor's book, which is a wonderful companion to the exhibits at the British Museum. Upon receiving the gift, I thought, wouldn't it be grand if we could tell the story of the centennial state and 100 objects? I thought, if McGregor could do it for the whole world, it should and could be done for a single state. I was particularly interested in telling the stories of ordinary people and communities that, well, quite frankly, are often overlooked in historical narratives about America in general and Colorado. So, I suggested it to History Colorado's leadership team. As it turns out, it was a timely suggestion since they were looking for a marquee exhibit to provide an overview of the state's history and a way to display History Colorado's collection of historical artifacts, of which they have millions of. Once they embraced the idea of presenting the state's history and culture in 100 objects, it became a practical matter of how to mount such an extraordinary exhibit.
1: And then eventually that exhibit turned into the book. Like, did you think of the, did you, th- were the exhibit and the book like kind of thought of at the same time or did one precede the other? Was it kind of like a, a mashup?
0: Uh, well, I prefer to use uh, the expression uh, one after the other. Right. First came the exhibit and then right. came the book. Okay. Good. Uh, and, and the book was in a sense necessary because The descriptions of each exhibit, while very fine descriptions, were, well, by their very nature, very short. And a book was needed to expand on what was being said.
1: Okay, that's great. That's great. So you say, let's talk about the introduction a bit. You say in the introduction that every object selected had to meet one of three requirements. It had to highlight a moment in Colorado history in which people made choices that defined who Coloradans are today, or it had to illuminate an important aspect of Colorado's evolving culture, or it had to bring a pattern of Colorado life into focus. So I thought that was really interesting to get a sense of like the rubric you you know you used to find these objects. So let's talk about the selection process. Like who was involved, and how long did it take to get it to a hundred or down to a hundred? I imagine it could have been a thousand. Or
0: oh, absolutely, absolutely, uh, it could have been a thousand maybe even more than that. In fact, some people wanted more than 100 objects, but there were you know, limitations. Well, let me first say there were two major steps to the selection process. First, History Colorado convened what Jason Hansen, the chief creative officer of History Colorado, called a charrette, uh, which was composed of local historians, History Colorado staff members, tribal consultants, and outside consultants to consider ways to organize the exhibit and to suggest objects for it. He invited these folks together for a day-long conversation about the proposed exhibit. Naturally, every individual had their own ideas and interests, so there was no coming to a consensus except for including the 59ers whiskey bottle in the exhibit. Everyone seemed to agree that the whiskey bottle should be included, since it symbolized the gold rush, a significant event in Colorado history. And it gave a sense of how difficult the journey was to reach Colorado. Perhaps folks were thinking that after the day-long discussion, they would need a shot of whiskey themselves. Second, History Colorado organized a smaller working group consisting of myself, some other local historians, and History Colorado staff members. Starting with the ideas generated at the charrette and grappling with the practical constraints of a small space to display 100 objects, we developed the exhibit and decided what objects should be included in it. We settled on telling a, a chronological history and for practical reasons, decided to emphasize the recent rather than the distant past, even though we all appreciated the significance of Colorado's earliest inhabitants. So as we approached the contemporary period, we added more artifacts. The result is the uh, current zoom in the Centennial State and 100 Objects exhibit at History Colorado.
1: OK, um, so let's talk about because I imagine you must have had a lot of fun, but also a lot of debates. Cause, so the whiskey bottles won. Now you have 99 other things to pick. You know, <laughs> um, Did the discussions ever get heated? I mean, in like a friendly way, because it seems like it would be the way people argue about sports teams or, or movies or something. It must have been fun in a sense, even if the debates got heated to figure out what was going to make the hundred. What were those conversations like?
0: Uh, well, I could say this. While everyone took the discussion seriously and advanced their ideas enthusiastically, they were never what you would call heated. I have to say that everyone acted with a high degree of professionalism. By the way, I want to mention that I learned a lot from the professional curators about how to exhibit historical artifacts, especially the inherent limitations of some artifacts, such as the fragility of Baby Doe's wedding gown. Uh, making it impossible, to put them on display. You know, when you're an outsider, you think, hey, we'll just get it out of the warehouse and into the exhibit hall. But that's not the case. They, too, have professional standards. But in the case of Baby Doe's wedding gown, you can still actually see it. You can uh, see her wedding dress as well as other items that she and her family own by going online to the History Colorado collection site. So in a sense, It's the beginning of, if you will, a search for more information that can be found in the History Colorado online collection or in history books. Uh, By the way, you can also learn about Baby Doe Tabor in Chapter 36 of Becoming Colorado, which features, as you know, Horace and Baby Doe's bedroom vanity.
1: So that's interesting because you made me realize as you were talking about not being able to see the dress, but about, you know, how we often take the work of curators for granted, right? You Like you can't go to a museum after going through this book and just, oh yeah, you just walk around and people put stuff out there. Like, Did, did it change the way you think of your museum experience?
0: <laughs> yes, it, yes, it did. <laughs> well, One of the things I could say from doing this uh, is that uh, the public actually trusts the exhibits in museums more than they trust the lectures given by historians. I don't quite know why, but that seems to be the case. Uh, Maybe it's because they think that the people involved in putting on these exhibits are much more professional and therefore less biased than professors. I don't think that's necessarily true, but I do think that uh, they see the exhibits as having, well... A higher degree of objectivity. Maybe it's because they're objects. Because you can touch them, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. You can't mess with them. Yeah. Whereas a lecture, well, you know, people (laughs) have to write them and share them, right? As we both know.
1: Yeah, because, right, a lecture isn't comprised of words, but at least, and of course, there is a certain, there's a whole bunch of subjectivity uh, behind what gets actually put in front of people in a museum. But yeah, there's something about the tangibility of the objects that makes it, you know, in air quotes, more real. It's something I yes,
0: election. Yeah, absolutely agree. I certainly feel that way myself. I just love looking at artifacts. Yeah, <laughs> and your
1: love is you know, it, it, your love for looking at artifacts and thinking about them and telling the story about them is is on every page. That's a shout out and a compliment to you for all our listeners. It, this book is filled, it's brimming with enthusiasm about the state and about the history of the state and who lived there. So. That said, I thought it'd be fun if we jumped around the book for, for a little bit. So you say in the introduction that it's perfectly acceptable to read, read random entries. You don't have to read 1 to 100 in order. You know, you read 42, then you read 12, and, and that's kind of what I did. And first you fill in the gaps of things you know and things that are interesting, and it was so much fun to read a book that way. So what I would like to do is I want to bring up some of the objects, and then for each one, you could tell us like why the object was chosen and what we can learn from that object. Okay. So here's the yes. first one. Here we go. Here the first one. Item nine, which is the Comanche or Kiowa buckskin and shell dress from about 1870.
0: Yes, thank you. Now, by the way, thank you very much for your kind comments. Sure. And uh, thank you also for bringing up this particular object. I want you to know that I was very mindful of the need to tell the story of the indigenous peoples of Colorado, both men and women who are, quite frankly, often overlooked as disappearing people or stereotyped as savages in narratives about the state and about the country. There were 48 indigenous peoples that occupied Colorado during the last 500 years, including the Comanche and Kiowa peoples, until whites drove them out. Even though they suffered from, well, what we call ethnic cleansing, they survive and have not disappeared, as some people seem to think. Now, everyone can appreciate a fine article of clothing. I don't care, you know, from which group of people. Everyone can appreciate a fine article of of clothing. So displaying the beautiful buckskin and shell dress was one way to share their history and culture with the visitors to the exhibit as well as to provide an example of their artistic sensibilities through the way they decorated it. As you know, it is a two-color buckskin dress with a flared bottom and a short-sleeved yellow top. The dress is decorated with carrie shells, which were a luxury item they got from trading with another group of people who were part of a sophisticated trade network that extended to the Pacific Coast. The woman who owned it was probably better off than appears, at least materially.
1: Yeah, when I saw that, I thought to myself, "Imagine the journey those shells had to make to get to Colorado." I mean, it's, it's it, you could look at. So it seems like that dress is like many Object in the book. Is if you look at the story of this one thing, you can go out in all kinds of directions and learn all about the networks that got that dress into that state.
0: That's well put. One of the things we have to keep in mind is these of folks were much more sophisticated than we think, that they were part of something, in many respects, that were larger than themselves, their tribe, and even their region.
1: Yeah. So let's let's move on to another one. Let's go ahead about 120 years to another garment. And this is item 92. And this is a grass dance skirt worn by Lakota Claremont. And now I'd like you to tell our listeners, you know, what is the grass dance What is Lakota Clare? Who is Lakota Claremont, and what does this object help us learn about Colorado? Hmm.
0: Well, the grass dance celebrates American Indian culture. It gives the performers the chance to let their inner spirit come out. The grass dance is a fast-paced dance with fluid, bending motions that evoke the swaying of grass in the breeze and symmetrical sweeps to to simulate. The Flattening of the Grass. It is, when you watch it, it is accompanied by rhythmic drumming and singing. Uh, traditionally, it was performed for a ceremony or a battle. The dance honors their warrior culture and enables the dancers to draw spiritual strength from the earth, conferring blessings on both the dancers and observers. So Claremont's costume helps to understand that traditional American Indian culture persists since it is worn while performing at powwows which are regular events that bring american indians together to celebrate their culture their cultures through dancing singing and feasting these powwows celebrate what american indians consider their fundamental values such as honor respect tradition and generosity they represent the resilience of the american indian community and the survival of their culture. And I think that's important to keep in mind.
1: Yeah. And that's, a, and that's another funny thing about your book and, and, and you know, not f- funny is the wrong word, but I mean, int- I mean, funny to mean interesting is that the more entries you read, the more themes you start to pick up. And that, that certainly is a big theme of your book is the indigenous people and how, th- how they um, were in Colorado, how they were perceived and how they, how they, uh, you know, sustain themselves today.
0: Yes. One of the things I hope is once they read about, uh, uh, the the grasshats, for example, uh, that they will want to go to a powwow, yeah. which are celebrated, you know, uh, around the nation. Yeah. And by participating in that, they will then uh, see for themselves that the American Indian culture, cultures are alive and well, and that they have values that we can relate to. Everyone can understand honor. They can understand respect. They get on and tradition and generosity.
1: So let's move on to another article of clothing. And, you know, this is part of the fun of the book, because you see some things in there that have become nationally known that aren't just that I did not associate with Colorado. So I have to ask you about the one that I'm sure is going to surprise many readers and many listeners. You have a pair of Crocs. And you call them, quote, I love this, quintessentially American shoes. I had no idea. I'm wearing Crocs right now. I had no idea they're from Colorado. And so tell us about that. What makes them quintessentially American? And what, how did they make it into the list of 100 objects?
0: <laughs> yeah, good question. Good question. The reason I call them quintessentially American shoes is because they reflect our emphasis on, well, innovation with mass appeal. They are clearly innovative since they do not look like conventional shoes, given their clog like shape, preparations, on the top and sides, and well, bold colors. And they are called crocs because they look like crocodiles snout. And like crocodiles, they are amphibious. That that is they can be worn on land and in the water. We Americans are known for our creativity and innovation, which I think, is a product of our liberal culture. We encourage entrepreneurship. We want people to think outside the box. Others seek to emulate us and even seek to surpass us. But I'll tell you, they're not going to be able to do it, especially those that are living under authoritarian governments because those governments are, well, overly cautious about any sort of change and are afraid to put themselves at risk. The one thing I could say about them is they are unwilling to change. They usually are underwritten by by dogma, rigid dogma, and we Americans are loathe. Uh, we loathe rigid dogmas. We believe in well change, and we've benefited immensely from it, and we continue to evolve as a nation.
1: So the, but you know, it's funny what you said about how strange Crocs are, but also how you know when we first saw Crocs, we everybody did a double take. I remember the first time I saw them; I think it was in Florida, and I was like, "Look at that guy's shoes! Like, what, what are those?" And now, of course, everyone's wearing them all the time. So it is a real story of like entrepreneurship and how something that was so strange now has become you don't notice it anymore; it's become normal.
0: Yes, that's right. (laughs) Uh, 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 Many of the things uh, uh, that we consider innovative. Uh, over time becomes normalized and they became universalized yeah that is to say that people around the world embrace American culture
1: yeah and yeah, entrepreneurship they, like you said yeah that's so yeah, funny.
0: Yeah, they want to be like us.
1: Yeah, it started in Colorado. There, <laughs> Good. Right. So I want to go to another. So everybody knows Crocs. I want to go to another well-known brand. And this was this made me laugh when I read it. This was a great entry. You include in the in the book a can of malted milk. But it's not from Borden, which everyone would assume. It's from Coors, <laughs> that we all know from Coors Beer, right? And you say in the essay, this may cause a double take. <laughs> and it certainly caused a double take for me. So let's talk about that object, the mo- can of malted milk from Coors.
0: Well, Dad, I, I too did a double take, since I think of course, like you do, as a beer company. After all, we call Coors Beer Colorado Kool-Aid which, by the way, is a slang term uh, and a part of the title of Johnny Paycheck's song about Coors beer. What the malted milk represents is Adolf Coors' company's ability to adapt to changing economic and political circumstances. And as you know, adaptation is the key to survival and evolution. During Prohibition, the company, diversified its product line to manufacture a variety of consumer goods, such as cooking utensils and malted milk, which uses the same process as the one to make fermented barley for beer. The malted milk and other products helped the Coors Company to survive a Prohibition, the Prohibition period, which, as you know, is from 1920 to 1933. Adaptation, along with hard work, and enterprise enable the Adolf Coors company to establish a regional beer company that could actually compete with the national brands, you know, like, like, um, Miller and Budweiser, and that is no mean achievement. So there's a lesson in there for us all.
1: Yeah. It's another, and again, the themes that go through the book, because that Coors malted milk can is like, you know, it's an example of innovation and adaptation. And you also have things from, you know, indigenous people, like the basket tray and you know, other things like that, that are that are examples of adapting to the world in which you live and trying to trying to you know um, make it better and succeed in it. So that's a, that's an unbelievable theme that goes to the book. Uh,
0: yes, I think that once again is a lesson that we need to uh, to learn and to act on if we want to survive as a nation and quite frankly as a species. Well, we need to be able to adapt to changing circumstances. And those circumstances are changing around us, right? Political, economic, and even climatic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned before the whiskey bottle, and this was probably when, when people asked me, what were some of the big takeaways you got from the book? My big takeaway, the gap that it filled in for me was to learn about the Colorado gold rush. I thought that was I thought that was incredible you you and I knew it happened but I didn't realize how d- the scale of the thing so you met, you note that it attracted twice the number of prospectors as the California one and that that floored me I didn't know that so I want to talk about the two objects that have to do with that one of them is the the previously mentioned 59ers whiskey flask and the next one is Wilbur Fisk's stone I'm sorry Wilbur Fisk Stone's gold ingot From 1865. So let's talk about those objects and the Colorado Gold Rush in general.
0: Sure, I'd be delighted to do that. Uh, As I mentioned, or in fact, as you mentioned, uh, the 59th uh, whiskey flask was the one object that those that those attending the charrette agreed should be in the exhibit. It was one of the things that the gold seekers carried on their way to Colorado, and it is an example of who actually benefited from the gold rush and. They were the merchants who outfitted the gold seekers for the arduous journey to Colorado. They were the ones who saw a sure way to profit from the gold rush, to provide the miners with tools and supplies. It gave rise to the expression, mining the miners. It is estimated that over 100,000 migrants from other parts of the country and from around the world set off for Colorado. Fewer than half made it to Denver, and only half of them continued on to the mountains to pan for gold. Now, one of those miners who actually became rich was Wilbur Fisk Stone. Stone, he was a remarkable man. He struck gold yeah, uh, at his, uh, a place of claim uh, in 1864 in Park County. And now, unlike other miners, who returned from where they came from, Stone remained in Colorado to make a life for himself, not as a miner, but as a jurist, who later served in the territorial legislature. He was also a historian who wrote a four volume history of Colorado, which by the way, is a great reference way for anyone studying the state's history and culture. Now, the gold rush itself, the impact of the gold rush cannot be under underestimated. The discovery of gold resulted in Colorado becoming a U.S. territory and later a state. Gold and other minerals were the economic foundation of the state. This is acknowledged by the state itself. If you look at the state seal, at the bottom of a heraldic shield is a cross-pick and sledgehammer on a golden background. So we acknowledge the importance of the minerals. And of course, that starts with the gold rush. But I think I think it's also to rem- important to remember that the gold rush led to the displacement of Colorado's indigenous people and the pollution and degradation of its, en- of its environment, uh, which we are still dealing with today. That is one of the uh, consequences of the gold rush. People came and they basically uh, <coughs> expelled, dispossessed, the indigenous people, so that they could access uh, the mineral wealth that was in the land.
1: You mentioned the, the uh, territorial legislature, and that brings up another theme of your book, which is Colorado politics. That that also weaves in and out of in out of the entry. So, uh, what- I want to mention item 35. That's a copy of the Colorado State Constitution, which was ratified in 1876. And then item 46 is one you call, you call this one of the most important in the whole collection. And it's a ballot box from 1884. So we got, we have the Colorado State Constitution, 1876, and a ballot box from 1884. So let's talk about those for a while.
0: Yes, I'd be delighted to do so. I have to first say that I'm an unabashed fan of our liberal democracy and a supporter of its constitutions, the U.S. Constitution and uh, the state constitutions, because they represent the rules we all agree to live by. They they make us a nation ruled by laws rather than a nation ruled by men, who are, well, often capricious and self-serving. The Colorado State Constitution protects the rights of Coloradans and represents their values such as freedom of speech. Carl are uh, can pretty much speak, write, and push whatever they want on any subject. And I can assure you, they do. What hmm, What makes our liberal democracy functional are our elections. And the 1884 ballot box is an early example of how, e- uh, well, elections were carried out. We as the people agreed to abide by the results of fair elections to ensure the smooth transition of political power in our country. Let me tell you, I study other nations, and they don't have, well, they don't have often elections, and if they do, they're often not fair, and the transfer of power is often not smooth, but chaotic and often violent. We have managed well, we we have uh, ma- hmm. we have generally managed to avoid this problem in our nation, you know. Generally, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah, generally. <laughs> I, I, well, you know, as a nation, I have to tell you we are still a work in progress. As as we like to say, we are striving to create a more perfect union. What makes us unique is our continuous effort to realize the ideals that are implicit in our founding documents, uh, like the US Constitution. Uh, By those, I'm referring to things like racial equality, social justice, and political empowerment. It is the commitment to these ideals that makes us Americans. We have made great strides in achieving them, right? For example, Uh, We've made great strides in giving the right to vote to more and more of our people, such as women and people of color, for example. And this is uh, remarkable. And hopefully we can continue to do so.
1: What did it mean for people in your imagination and from what you've read as a historian? What did it mean for people in the late 19th century that to to know that they were living in what was going to become a state like what did what did, if you would to describe to somebody who, who just took it for granted oh yeah there's 50 states and they just divide the, what did statehood mean then that people can kind of forget now
0: ah good question uh, state statehood is is very it was very important to the people at the time because uh by becoming a state they became part of something that was Greater than themselves, they became part of the United States of, of America. And they defined themselves as not just Coloradans but as Americans. And That meant that they uh, <coughs> would receive, of course, uh, the benefits of being an American uh, Americans, but also the responsibility that comes with being, you know, Americans. And that became, you know demonstrated uh, through, among other things, their participation in uh, various conflicts, such as the Civil War, but conflicts abroad as well.
1: Do you find that people today, when you travel the country, People in different states have different levels of enthusiasm for the state in which they live. And so I'm in New Jersey. I grew up in New Jersey. And, you know, the way people will, will talk about New Jersey might be different than the way people in Colorado talk about that or in Alaska or different states. Like, what's the degree of, of like, you know, um, like state pride or like Colorado identity from people that live there?
0: Yes. That, yes. A good point. Uh, everyone views their states differently. Uh, I think the important thing to keep in mind is that prior to the Civil War, uh, arguably people often identified themselves uh, first with their state, and then after the Civil War, they identified themselves as part of the nation. I think uh, what happens is, is that by doing that, their personal identity it then becomes their national identity, because your personal identity is often shaped by local circumstances, right? Your family, you know, your friends, the place you live, the institutions you belong to. Yeah, But yeah, when you go beyond that, you identify with the nation. And I think part of the natural evolution yeah, should be that we will eventually go beyond the nation and be, become part of the world. Yeah? And beyond that, we will be part of a shared humanity. And I think that's that's uh, uh, the direction I hope we're heading. Although I have to say that sometimes I find that humanity has, well, some, some downsides to it. It seems that humanity uh, likes to be in conflict with itself and conflict with others. But, you know, in the 24th century, in the age of Star Trek, we all have gotten our act together, but we still might find the need to be in conflict with others, you know, in the universe, like uh, 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 Klingons, Robins, (laughs) and all the other folks that we think live out there.
1: Well, you could do a history of Klingon and 100 objects. I mean, they could, they could hire you to be a Klingon historian. Um, what, you know, One of the things that's funny, I, t- I mentioned about the way people think about different states, is I interviewed a, a, a fellow who wrote a book about Arizona. And I oh. said, oh, Arizona beautiful. And oh, but in New Jersey, like, he said when he was a kid, of course, he would say to his parents, why can't we move someplace interesting like New Jersey? <laughs> so I guess it's a relative, you know? And I bring that up because one of the things that draws people to Colorado. So those of us on the East Coast here, we think of Colorado, and we think, "Oh, it's beautiful! It's it's so gorgeous!" The first time I went there, I I, I left the Denver airport, and I, you just see mountains. And, and I thought, I can't believe people drive around and just see this like during the day when they're, you know, when they're going to Target and stuff, like it's unbelievable. So the, so <laughs> sure. you mentioned in the introduction that, that many people are drawn to Colorado for the beauty of its landscape. And I want to talk about an item in the book that, that comes up there. This is item 59. This is a plaque that was designed in the 1920s by Rocky Mountain National Park Superintendent Roger Wolcott Toll. And it's got that iconic image of the Rocky Mountain Bighorn Sheep, which I had seen before, but I never, you know, connected all the pieces of information till I read the book. So let's talk about who was Roger Wolcott Toll and, and how did this plot come about and, and that Rocky Mountain Bighorn Sheep?
0: Let me, first of all, agree with you. Colorado is, in fact, beautiful. Beautiful. When I stepped off the airplane <laughs> at the Denver International Airport, you know, uh, I thought I had died and gone to paradise.
1: Yeah, I really it's, did. It's, I couldn't, I, it's, it takes your breath away the first time you see it all. And then you get, you, you can't stop looking. I kept driving down, you know, driving driving uh, down the highway and you can't, it's almost like you have to, you wish someone else were driving because you just want to walk out the window. You can't believe it. And of course <laughs> we're not alone. That's what brings some, that's a big, big drawing draw of Colorado. Yes, speaking
0: of driving, when I first drove from Michigan, uh, I graduated from the University of Michigan at okay. Ann Arbor, and I drove across the nation uh, to Colorado. One of the first things I saw were the mountains in the distance, yeah. And I, I said, "Wow, I'm almost there. I'm almost <laughs> there." And it took me another five hours yeah. before I arrived, <laughs> yeah. you know. And I, when I saw it looming up, I, I finally understood the term "purple mountain." Majesties,
1: Right. It was you, think, you I thought of Lewis and Clark where you think, oh, we're going to be there by the end of the day. And yeah. you're not even close, but it's such a great <laughs> optical illusion.
0: <laughs> That's right. It is exactly right.
1: So let's uh, talk about item 59.
0: Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, well, let me say, like me and other folks, I love Rocky Mountain National Park. Yeah. And, uh, when I first arrived in Colorado, I made it a point to visit the park. When I went above the tree line to the Alpine Tundra, I had was tantamount to a spiritual experience. I was overcome uh, with emotion as I stood in awe of the mountains. It was then that the lyrics of John Denver's song, Rocky Mountain High, which is one of the two official state songs, made sense to me. I now know what he meant when he talked about cathedral mountains. I have to say, one of the wisest things America has ever done was to create national parks, like Rocky Mountain National Park, for the enjoyment of people. It is, as you know, often referred to as America's best idea. One of the main reasons people from abroad come to America is to visit our national parks. About 4 million people, foreign and domestic, visited a Rocky Mountain National Park each year. Last year, uh, last year 300 million visited our national parks. Uh, uh, not incidentally, it was the grandeur of Colorado and the American West in general that inspired the idea of preserving the wilderness from the encroachment of people as they expanded westward. Now, I like Roger Toll's plaque, but as I noted in my essay, one of the ironic things is that it features the bighorn sheep, the largest wild sheep in North America. It is the symbol of the park, and it is the state animal. Yet, it was on the verge of extinction at the turn of the 20th century. Since 1978, uh, 1978, they have been reintroduced to the park, and now there are about 600 of them. I, I also like to say that I actually had the pleasure of seeing one in the park, walking along the ridges. I doubt that I'll ever see one again, since it is a rare Occurrence, very rare occurrence. I think the plaque is a good one, though one of the things I also mentioned uh, in my essay is that it omits people. One of the things to keep in mind about Colorado is that it has a beautiful environment that was filled with people, indigenous people as well as animals. And that when, when we created the park, uh, we also displaced the people. And, you know, and this was problematic. One of the things we're trying to do now is to involve the indigenous folks in the management of the park and uh, the story that we want to tell about the park. and That makes for a more comprehensive story. But uh, uh, it is part of the process of our people. We make mistakes, and over time we try to, if you will, rectify them. That's one of the virtues of, of America. Uh, like other countries, we make mistakes, and we try to rectify them, although it's often belated. But nevertheless, we do. And the reason I want to say that is there are other nations who, quite frankly, do not own up to their mistakes,
1: Right. Very true. Very true. So I've, I've thrown out maybe nine or 10 items in the book here at you, but I wanted to know if there was one that I didn't bring up that you love talking about, or out of all the, out of all the hundred, there must be some of, there must be a few of Williams favorites or, or like, you know, the, the one that you really, maybe it just like, it just delighted you when it got chosen or what's an object that I didn't bring up today that you'd love to talk about?
0: Yes. Thank you for asking me <laughs> about this. Oh, I highly recommend Uh, Item 41, Daisy Chin's wedding dress. Uh, Behind the beautiful Chinese dress, which is made of silk brocade, sewn with gold and silver threads, is the story of Chinese Coloradans in general and the Chin family, who have lived in Colorado since the 19th century. Now, Daisy Chin's father-in-law was Chin Lin Su, a former worker on the Central Pacific Railroad the western half of the famous Transcontinental Railroad. As some of your listeners probably know, the western half was built mainly by Chinese workers. The western half was the more difficult half, having to cross the Sierra Nevadas and the Rocky Mountains. Many Chinese workers died and were injured while building the Central Pacific Railroad. Now, the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad unified the country economically and culturally. So the Chinese who worked on it contributed to the unification of the country. After the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad, Chinese dispersed throughout the interior west, looking for work to support themselves and their families in China. Some of them went to Colorado, where they did all kinds of work and established Denver's Chinatown, which was the largest of the 200 that existed in the American west. Tragically, anti-Chinese sentiments resulted in their being driven out of their out of their communities. So people are always surprised to learn, what? There were over two hundred of these communities, where have they gone? Well, unfortunately uh, they were driven out because of ethnic cleansing, one of the more dark chapters in our nation's history. Uh, this anti Chinese sentiment nearly destroyed Denver's Chinatown. On October 31st, 1880, a mob of several thousand Denverites descended upon Chinatown raping and pillaging. Most of the Denver Chinese remained to rebuild their community. After all, it was their home, and they stayed. So you want to learn about a group of people that are also often overlooked, I recommend Daisy Chin's wedding dress. Thanks.
1: Can you remind the listeners again how they might be able to see this either in person or online?
0: Ah, yes. Okay. Well, in person, it's easy. (laughs) Come to to Denver. Uh, People like to come to Colorado. And one of the first places they will come to is Denver. While they're in Denver, one of the places that they are often encouraged to visit is uh, the History Colorado center which contains a museum which houses the zoom in exhibit the zoom in the centennial state and 100 objects exhibit that's where they will find all of the objects that we have been talking about and more it's also the place by the way where you know they can probably pick up a copy of my book and, and and they should take the book with them when they're going through the exhibit because they will provide more information about each object that they're looking at. So that's one thing they can certainly do. And they can certainly see uh, some of the objects by going on to the History Colorado uh, website. The History Colorado website uh, will allow them to access the uh, collection that they have. Their collection includes the objects that we've been talking about, as well as many more objects. And let's face it, this is what people do, right? They often will go online first, but that's all right. You go online, and hopefully it will encourage you to visit the place in person, because there's no substitute for being there
1: for the real thing, right? I mean, yeah. and, and your book, and your book is, a, it's beautifully put together. I mean, it's an actual, as a physical object, the book is is stunning. It's got beautiful pictures in it and it's got a great writing in it, like I said before, is so enthusiastic. So I just have to say, you know, William Way, it's been great talking to you today. Becoming Colorado, the centennial state in 100 objects. You can get it wherever books are sold. You can get an Amazon. You can get a copy linked from the New Books Network website. Thank you so much for talking to us today.
0: Thank you, Dan. The pleasure was all mine.